Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to say to them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. We know that it is indeed the savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they, had, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you do not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left. The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this morning is the second message in our series that you may believe. And we're spending 14 weeks in the book of John. And we're looking at Jesus's signs and his great I am statements. And as we do that, like we did this morning, we're going to be reading publicly through the entire gospel because it's a great idea to read the book that you're studying. And so the series title, if you heard last week's message, it goes back to John's purpose statement that he tells his readers, this is why I've written this book. In John 20 verses 30 and 31, he says that he's recorded his eyewitness testimony so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we have two great themes in the book of John. You've got eternal life and you've got faith. And so the overarching point is this. John claims true life comes through faith in Jesus. And so we keep that in mind as we're reading the whole book, as we're studying the whole book, this is John's purpose. This is what he's trying to persuade you of as he's writing. And so we're keeping that author's intent uh, in mind as we study uh, because everything that he writes is designed to argue this, all right? So whenever you come up against a passage where it seems a little opaque, you can't figure out what he's trying to say, this will help you get to the bottom of it because this is his purpose, all right? And so last week, Uh, We're going through the signs and the I am statements. And last week we looked at the first sign that Jesus did, which was turning the water into wine. And we saw that um, it reveals who Jesus is. And John is saying life, true life, eternal life is in Jesus because he is the promised Messiah. And he's ushering in the age of joy, the age of mercy, the age of ultimate glory that will come through him to all his children. And so today's message, we're going to be looking at the second sign that John uh, records. And so the, the, the title of the message today is A Sign of Good Faith. And our focus passage within what we read today is chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. And it's the healing of the official's son. All right, so the first sign, the one we looked at last week, it takes place in Cana in Galilee. And then you may have noticed the second sign also takes place in Cana. But in the meantime, Jesus is traveling. So he goes from Cana to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And he performs many signs there. He cleanses the temple. And then he travels back to Cana. 
And on his way, he has these encounters with various people that are going to show us not just who Jesus is, but it's also going to show us what it looks like to believe in his name, as John talks about. What does faith, the kind of faith that actually, actually brings you life, what does this kind of faith look like? All right? And so, in a future message, we're going to unpack what John means by eternal life. Why is it that, this, that he thinks this life is so great that uh, even if you have to suffer with Jesus for it, that it's worth it, and it's actually worth more than anything else you could possibly have. So we're going to get to that at a future message. But today, I want to look at the nature of this life-giving faith. And what we're going to see is this. Everyone has faith, but there's a difference between operating in bad faith versus operating in good faith. And the only way to tell the two apart is through testing. All right? So I've just told you what you're going to hear. <laughs> all right, so as we get into this, I want to deal, first of all, with probably the, the, the single biggest misconception about faith, which is that faith is this kind of peculiar religious thing that some people have and other people don't. Right? And you come across this assumption in two different ways. You can hear it, a lot of times you hear it from kind of a superior stance. This is often uh, more of a, a secular mindset which would say, well, faith is what weak people need to make it through you know, the harsh realities of life. That's for weak people. Or faith is for uneducated people who don't have the evidence that they need to fill in what they believe. And so you need faith to fill in that gap where there's no evidence, right? And so you, that's kind of like a, a superior stance. But you also hear it as an inferior stance. And it goes like this. Then this off, more often comes from uh, people who um, would consider themselves religious, which is to say, I wish I could have faith like so-and-so. I wish I could have faith like this man of God or this woman of God. And so... The problem with both of those stances is that the person is assuming, I don't have faith. And the reality is, human life is actually impossible to live without faith. Now, I've spoken on this before, so I don't, I'm not going to go into massive detail on it, but you have to understand, faith is not primarily a religious thing. Faith Here's the simplest way I think you should understand what faith is. Faith is simply the kind of trust that you can act on. It's simply the kind of faith, the kind of trust that you can act on. And you can see it um, in almost everything we think, we say, or we do. Why? What do you mean? What do you mean we have faith in everything that we do? Well, because... To move through the world, to have relationships, to do business, to, to actually have knowledge at all requires an element of faith. Why? Because as we move through the world, we're, we're forced to trust our senses, our perceptions, right? Our, our, our intuitions, our convictions, none of which are actually objectively provable. And that's not to say, you know, I'm not becoming, uh, you know, that's not a postmodern philosophy statement. Um, it's not that we can know nothing. It's just this is the nature of how we know anything at all. We don't know things absolutely. In fact, Scripture says we know in part, right? So Scripture actually preempts the whole postmodern turn by a few thousand years, which is pretty cool. But huh. so it's not a question of whether we have faith or we don't have faith. Anything we think we know involves a measure of trust, of faith. Everyone took their seats this morning. I didn't see a single person, you know, get out any kind of mechanical testing gear to make sure, number one, that the seat was actually there. It's not a hologram. We're not in the matrix, you know. No, I, I didn't see anybody turn behind them to make sure the person behind them wasn't going to pull the chair out right? So there's, a, there, there's like a relational trust. There's a, maybe someone did, but, you know, I didn't see it. You know, so in other words, you, you, you knew the chair was behind you, you sat down. Why? Because you trusted the chair. Why? Because you have evidence based on experience and knowing the kinds of things that chairs generally are, that it's the kind of thing you can sit on. Right? That's faith. All right? 
And so it's not a leap in the dark. It's, 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 a, it's a leap that's ba- it's a leap into the light, as John Lennox puts it. Um, okay. In John chapter 3 and 4, as we read, we get to see this reality of faith getting played out in a number of different encounters. Okay? So first of all, we see Jesus, and this is such a, this, this might be my favorite portion of Scripture. It might be. It's just so incredibly rich. You see Jesus discussing faith with Nicodemus, right? You see him then discussing faith with um, the, the disciples of John the Baptist. Then you see him discussing faith with the woman at the well in Samaria. And all the while he's traveling, he's, he's heading out of Jerusalem, he's going into the countryside, and then he goes through Samaria. And, and eventually, it brings him back to Cana. And, and in each of these encounters, the question is, how will they receive him? Will they trust him? So, in the passage that we're focusing on, Jesus has finally made it back to Galilee. Uh, he's in his home region. And there's this, I don't know if you caught this, there's this, this interesting note that John adds in parentheses. He says, Jesus went to Galilee because he knew that no prophet receives honor in his hometown. It's kind of a strange reason to go somewhere. You know, when bands are touring, they don't pick, they don't pick the towns where they know they're going to get booed. Right? So, Jesus goes there because a prophet receives no honor in his hometown. So then what happens? He goes into Galilee, and then it says, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, that's not what we were expecting, John, when you tell us that. It kind of looks like they are honoring him, wouldn't you say? So why is it that Jesus does not receive this as honor? I think we get two clues in what goes before. So if you turn your mind back to chapter 2, Jesus has cleansed the temple, and it says he did many signs, and it says many believed in his name because of the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He had no need of anyone to tell him what was in man, for he knew man. Why? Because he is man. (laughs) But It says he did not entrust himself to them, even though they were believing in his name. Well, doesn't John tell us, I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ so you can believe in his name and have eternal life. So here we are, we see people believing in his name. Why is it John is not equating this with the kind of believing in his name that gives eternal life? Aren't they believing in his name? Well, yes and no. In chapter 3, it goes on to show us a a key distinction, all right? So John the Baptist, um, he says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So John, he's equating belief and obedience. Belief and obedience are the same thing. And so what he's saying is faith that does not obey is not really faith. It's something else. All right, so why did Jesus not entrust himself to these people who, in some sense, were believing in his name? It's because he knew what was in them. He knew, in other words, that the beliefs they were professing were at odds with what they were actually committed to, let alone what they were actually obeying. And so... This is what's legally referred to as operating in bad faith. Here's how you can put the the, the essence of bad faith. Bad faith manipulates trust in order to secure benefits or rewards or, or whatever. Bad faith manipulates trust to secure certain benefits. So I've already said everyone has faith. That's just part of human life. But you can operate in bad faith with the faith that you have, or you can operate in good faith. And when you operate in bad faith, what it shows, it doesn't, 
these people still had faith. It doesn't show that you don't have faith. What it shows is that your, your real faith that's underneath your professing faith is a trust that's in something else. You're actually trusting something else other than what you consciously or what you publicly profess to trust. And so Jesus did not entrust himself to these crowds because he knew that they were operating in bad faith. Yes, they were seeking after him. Yes, uh, they said they wanted to follow him. But Jesus knew they weren't following him for him. They were following him for what he could do for them. And so they're saying, Jesus, we trust you. But he knows underneath what they really trust is the signs. Jesus, we won't trust you until we get the signs. Thank you very much. Recently, we taught on the story of Scripture uh, in the, our, our um, Profile of Passion series. We we're talking about Scripture. It's this great romance between Jesus, who in Scripture is, is God, the faithful husband of Israel. Um, it's this great romance between God, the faithful husband, and Israel and the church, his bride. So, Jesus is not the kind of groom who will entrust himself to a gold digger. <laughs> if you ex- excuse that, uh, that uh, phrase. Um, <laughs> Jesus is not the kind of groom who will entrust his heart to someone he knows is only after his money, or his goods, or his riches, or his fame, or his comfort. Any spouse any bride or groom that would enter into a marriage on those terms is operating in bad faith, right? You know, you could, you could uh, substitute that picture with a business deal or any kind of thing, right? Um, it's operating in bad faith. Now, what's interesting to me is that Jesus knows this, and yet he still performs the signs and miracles, right? He knows what's in the people, but he still performs the signs. And what's interesting is that he says elsewhere, such people, when they receive the sign, they've, they've gotten their reward. They've received their reward. Jesus talks about the, 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 the hypocrite praying in public, and, and, uh, and he says, I tell you the truth, such person has received their reward. Why? Because when they're praying, they're not praying in faith to God because they want God. They're praying so that, Jesus says, people would see them, give them, give them you know, some sort of religious respect, see them as this good and, and honorable person. And so if that's what you're after, God gives it to you. That's your reward. But he won't give you himself. Jesus won't entrust himself to you. He may do the signs, He may respond with some miraculous response, but that's not the kind of faith where Jesus will entrust his heart to you. It's not the kind of faith that unites us to Jesus because as long as that is our heart, what we really want is the blessings. We don't want the groom. And so we might see the signs, we might get the blessings, but we won't see him. And so that's the opposite of operating in good faith. What does it mean to operate in good faith? Good faith cultivates trust in order to secure relationship. Good faith cultivates trust to secure relationship. So bad faith, it's using the facade of trust to manipulate the relationship to get what it really wants, whatever that is. All right? But we can't do that with Jesus. You can't, we kind of have this idea, this this kind of religious idea that if, if we do certain things, if we live a certain kind of moral life, if we pray a certain formula of prayers, if we respond in, in some correct way, that God will have to save us. I did what I, I did it, God. You got to save me now. (laughs) 
Or I did it, God. You've got to give me the, the, the husband that I, I've been waiting for or the wife I've been waiting for or the kids I've been waiting for or the job I've been waiting for or the fill in the blank, right? You can't put God in your debt. You can't, I mean, Scripture tells us God will not be mocked. You can't manipulate God and his trust that he offers us as his beloved, you know, image bearers, you can't manipulate to get God into your debt. You can't use Jesus to get eternal life. Eternal life is not something he, he, he just gives. Eternal, he is eternal life. It's him. You can't have it if you don't have him. Because it's in him. So, in a good faith marriage, when you enter into a marriage or any kind of covenant relationship like that, um, in a good faith marriage, if you were to come to the end of the ceremony, you know, all the the rings have been exchanged, the vows have been made and everything, and then uh, you head off to the honeymoon and your your now new spouse says, okay, have a great time, I'm, I'm not coming with you. That's unacceptable, right? Doesn't matter how amazing the Sandals Resort is. That's unacceptable, all right? If, if you're entering into a good faith marriage, in, you would never in a million years accept a future without your beloved because that's what you're in it for, right? And so... A lover operating in good faith would not settle for a, 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 a belovedless future in a million years. And yet what this passage tells us is that the human heart has this tendency to want Jesus' stuff and not him. Oh, that's a dangerous one, guys. It's such a dangerous one. And what's even scarier is that we may not even realize that we're operating in that. You know, we can pray a prayer and, and we, we desire to go to heaven or, or at least we you know, desire to escape hell. And um, <laughs> we don't realize that unless Jesus is our reward, heaven won't be heaven to us. The whole point of why heaven is so great is because God's there. And he's united with his people. Right? Anyone who could take the honeymoon without the beloved is operating in bad faith. All right. What is this passage? What is this passage about the official son? What does it show us about the nature of operating in good faith? It tells us a few things about what it looks like. All right? And there's a progression. There's, there's, there's stages, you might say. And we're going to see it's more than profession. It involves the whole person. Mind, will, and heart. All right, so let's go back to the story. Uh, Jesus, he's, he's returned from Jerusalem. He's, in, he's had all these encounters. Now he's back in Galilee. He's got all these adulating crowds around him, and up comes this official, uh, or, or other translations would say a, a nobleman, or a, um, the word here, uh, it either means a, a member of the royal household, this could be a person of royalty, or it could be a person representing royalty. Um, doesn't change uh, very much except to say that he is a, this is a person of rank, okay? And now that tells us something, because Clearly, this nobleman, um, he had either been at the Passover and seen what Jesus did, or he's heard of what Jesus had done. And so he comes to him, and clearly this is the desperation of a father who has exhausted every possible option. And you imagine he spent everything he has on doctors, uh, he's tried all the, uh, you know, the, the teas and the lotions, and the, uh, he's, he's tried the holy men, um, and it's all 
come to nothing. His son is on his deathbed. And so normally, a, a person of rank would send a delegation. They'd send a messenger to speak to Jesus. And you see that in other places. And yet here, he came himself. He's begging for the life of his son. And so this is what a lot of commentators point out. This is the first stage of what you would call good faith. So the first point here is that good faith convinces your mind to search. Faith always begins with information. Because remember, faith is essentially trust. Romans 10, 7, it says that faith comes by hearing the word about Jesus or the word of Jesus. There, there's, there's information there without which the faith can't operate. Faith doesn't exist in a void. It's built on hearing something that inspires trust. It's built on hearing something about God that causes you to seek him. And so you think, what was it that sparked in this man getting up and traveling to Jesus? It's either what he heard or what he'd seen, but it sparked this conviction in his mind that I've got to find this Jesus because maybe he can heal my son. Right? That trust, that, that, that spark of trust, it led him to search for Jesus, and it was based on the evidence of what he'd heard about him. Now, Charles Spurgeon calls this stage, uh, he calls it a seeking faith. And this is the faith, it's the kind of faith that leads a person to, to, to pray. You know, those desperate prayers. God, please help me. Help this person that I care about. And so, this is the kind of faith that sparks you to really seek God. This is not the kind of faith that's just kind of like, yeah, God's up there, you know. This is the kind of faith where, th- th- this is the beginning of a good faith because it actually has this spark of trust that causes this going out, this seeking of God. And so he prays and he asks Jesus to come. And this is, this is the prayer of his heart as a father. And so you see all this, and he lays his heart out before Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He gives him this kind of gentle rebuke. A little bit how he gave his mother a gentle rebuke in the first sign. And you kind of think, wow, Jesus, man, like, this guy's pretty desperate. I mean, can you just help him out? Do you really have to, right? I don't know if he comes across like that to you sometimes, but... Uh, Here's the thing. God is love. All right? And so Jesus does everything that he does. He's, everything he says has the motivation of love. So you have to ask, when you come across a hard saying or, or something that's confusing that Jesus says or does, you have to ask, how does this show love? Right? The love of Jesus, what we see here, is that the love of Jesus compels him to test this man's faith. Right? Now, we don't think of a test of faith generally as a good thing. But what we see here is because Jesus loves this man, he's not satisfied with just healing his son. He wants to restore and heal the man. He wants to test his faith so that it could be shown real and pure and good. Why does his love compel him to do that? Because faith that's not tested cannot really be known to be faith. Think about it. If faith is trust, how can you know if you actually trust something if you're not put in a position where you're forced to risk something on it? Right? And so this is, this is not a message that I want to hear and I'm sure you don't want to hear, but faith is forged in hardship. Faith is forged through testing. And I think a lot of times our natural response is when you're going through something, you're going through faith, you're going through some sort of challenge, your response is, man, I must not 
I've had enough faith. If I had the faith, I wouldn't be going through this one. Actually, God is purifying and shaping and forging your faith as he gives you an opportunity in that to trust him. And so Jesus' love compels him to put our faith to the test. And so he tests this nobleman. And um, what we lose in the translation into English is that he's actually addressing not the man in the singular, he's actually addressing the crowd. So in the uh, authorized southern version, it reads, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. I don't know where that accent is from. It's just generic southern, all right? I apologize to all southerners. But you have an advantage in southern English because, you, you know, you have the you plural. Um, I mean, yeah, I know we have the you's guys and all that stuff, but it's, come on. It's, let's not do that, okay? <laughs> so Jesus, he's not just looking at the man. He's, he's looking at everyone. The man comes with this request, and he looks at everyone and says, unless you all don't see signs, you all won't believe. In other words, aren't you just like one of these other people? who really trusts the signs more than you trust me? Are you going to treat me as Lord, or are you going to treat me as this magician for hire? And so he puts him to the test. And it's interesting how the man responds. He says, Lord. He uses that word, kirie, Lord. It's sometimes translated sir, but it is that, it's that same word, Lord. Come down before my little one dies. And the, the, the word for child there is this is diminutive. It's, it's, you see his, his heart and his affection coming out. And so he's demonstrating that he really is convinced that Jesus can heal him. And so Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. And you think, great. Right? He finally gets what he asks for. Fantastic. But no. <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, this is, this is a second test. It's probably even a harder test because the man had asked him, please come with me, lay hands on him, anoint him, and, you know, and he'll be healed. Jesus says, are you going to demand your means and your schedule of how I'm going to answer your prayer? Or are you going to trust me that my power is sufficient beyond space, beyond time, and I can just say the word and it's done? Right? And it says, the man took Jesus' word, he believed his word, and he went on his way. And so he goes through this second test. And apparently, he took his time on his way home. All right? Because, so this distance uh, between Cana and Capernaum was uh, roughly 20 miles, Okay? Uh, we were told that it was one o'clock in the afternoon. Now, walking at the decent pace of three hours a mile, uh, sorry, three miles an hour, sorry. <laughs> he should have gotten home by seven or eight o'clock at night, right? Now, I know it's hilly, all right? But basically, if he really wanted to get home that night, he, he would have gotten home. <laughs> I mean, Bob runs that distance regularly, in less than, you know, a few hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, if you, if you thought your child was about, you know, if he was still worried that his child was prob- maybe still going to die, he wasn't quite sure about the word that Jesus gave him, you know, he at least would have power walked, right? But that's not what you see. He, he strolls home, and, and you know how slow we know he was going? Because it says his servants, after this boy was healed, his servants went out to meet him. So they're, they're coming towards each other. His servants don't see him till the next day. So obviously this guy stopped and, and slept overnight somewhere. This is, this is the behavior that shows he really trusted. There's no, this, this is not, sometimes you think of faith as like, well, a person of really strong faith is that person who's like, they're on the road and they're like, yes, I'm good. I'm believing God. You know, I'm just believing God. I'm going to fight through this. I'm going to wage war with my prophecies and the scriptures. And I'm going to, you know, and like, and you think that that is strong faith. No, strong faith is absolutely carefree. 
It's absolutely content. He's implicitly trusting to the point where he can stroll home without a care in the world. (laughs) That is faith. And so, huh? good faith is the kind of faith that you actually act on. It goes beyond mental assent, and it moves your will. And even more than that, it shows in your attitude. All right? And so, huh. if the test of belief is acting as if it were true, this is what you see this guy doing. All right? So, there's this interesting comment. It says, he, he, he strolls home, he's met by his servants, the servants say, your son's gotten better, and he checks the time, and wow, it's, it's the t- exact time Jesus said. And so, and now John says, he believed and his household with him. So it's interesting that John, it's at this point John says, he believed. And you say, well, John, didn't he believe when he got up and went to Jesus in the first place? Yes. That was a seeking faith. Didn't he believe when when Jesus told him the word and he took it and he went away? Well, yes. That was an obedient faith. And now what you see is he's not only trusting Jesus for this one thing. Now he's trusting Jesus with everything. He goes from a seeking faith to an obedient faith to a committed faith or an assured faith. And so the final point here is that good faith leads your heart to commit. Good faith leads your mind to search, your will to obey, and your heart to commit. And so these are, there are three qualities, but they're also kind of three stages of faith. And this is the, the kind of faith that actually unites you to Jesus. Because these are the same things that make for true relationship. Not only seeking a person for what they can offer, that's a transactional relationship, and the ultimate end is the thing, right? But in an actual relationship, it's not just seeking them for what they can offer, but it's taking them at their word, and it's being committed to them. And again, p- p- you know, marriage is such a perfect picture of that. We make vows to each other, we take each other at our word, and then we remain committed to each other. And that's the picture of Jesus and how he's faithful to his bride, to his people. And so I want to, as we, as we bring this to a close, I, I want to bring this home to us right now. Because I know, I know many of our, our, your lives and situations, and I know that there's many, there's many things that you need faith for. Things that are worrying, things that are, 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 scary, that, that make you cry out in that desperation like this father. And there's many other things that I don't even know about. And so, what is that thing that you're facing that needs faith? And what is it, if you're honest with yourself, that you're ultimately trusting in? We all trust something. Everybody in the world places their ultimate trust on something. And the question is, can that thing or can that person actually deliver what you're trusting it for? A couple weeks ago, uh, we shared uh, Paul Stewart's prophetic word that that this is a year, uh, well, I'll I'll read just a a small portion of it here. This is the, the year 2022 is a year to clean up our act. It's a year where we need to meditate on the proverb that God sees everything we do and knows all the motivations for the places we're going. He wants to purify his church to prepare for the tremendous growth coming as revival takes off and thousands are drawn to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, he wants us authentic. This is the year we have to, um, we will have success as we meditate and trust in God and our brothers and sisters, to help us through this trial. So I, I, that, that word came back to mind as I was preparing this, that yes, this is a year where God, huh, we've, we've already been through, I would say, a, a time of a lot of testing, and it's, and it's continuing, but God has a purpose in it. 
to test and refine our faith so that we not only seek him, we not only obey him, but we would be fully committed from the heart and lead like this man. His faith was not only a faith of crisis. His faith was not only a faith of commitment. It was a, it was a contagious faith because he believed and his whole household, right? And how many are believing for our households to come to faith, right? What is the object of your trust when it really comes down to it? Because any other object of trust will ultimately lead you to operate in bad faith. Why? Because any other object of trust trust cannot actually deliver the weight that we're putting on it. And so what happens is that you come to the end of that and now you're forced to fake it. Right? And you see that with the Pharisees. When you see that, that religious mindset, they put their trust on their ability to be obedient. Right? And, and Jesus, he calls them hypocrites because you know where that road leads you? If you have to enter into heaven on the basis of your own goodness, you got no other choice but to fake it. You got no other choice but to try and twist God's arm somehow so that you can make it into his presence because none of us can possibly satisfy that condition. Why would a person operate in bad faith? Well, sometimes it's not conscious, but, but ultimately I think it's because we're afraid of not getting the thing that we really desire. Well, Jesus says, I am the thing that you really desire. I am the life. And if you have me, you will have the life that you're looking for. You will have the truth, the beauty, the goodness that you're created for as a human being. It's in me. And the reason you're, 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 you're searching in all these places and you're not finding what you want is because it's all in me. But if you have me, you get all these things thrown in with it. Jesus comes and says that faith in him is all we need because when you trust him, you're freed from all these other needs to perform and, and, and uh, need to try and twist God's arm and, and deceive in order to get what we want. It's him. And if you have him, you have everything. And so I want to put, you, put, put some questions to you that um, they're, they're not mine, they're Charles Spurgeon's, but they're so good I had to steal them. So you say you have faith. Is your faith the kind of faith that makes you pray? Does your faith make you seek God? Spurgeon says, if if your faith doesn't even make you pray, get rid of it. Drop it. Start again. (laughs) You know, I'm asking... What is the real object of our faith? Well, the only way you know that is when it's tested. Because the crowds come to Jesus asking for a sign. The nobleman comes to Jesus asking for a sign. On the surface, it looks the same, right? They may even consciously be thinking they're looking for the same thing. How do you find out which is which? It's only through the testing. And the testing shows you where your heart really is. And so when you're going through something, you're probably going through something right now, have you turned to Jesus? Is that the first place you think to turn? You know, a lot of times I'll be in like a a, uh, less than desirable emotional state, shall we say. (laughs) And it'll dawn on me, you know, Ian, you haven't even brought this to Jesus yet. You've called so-and-so, You've called this person, you looked it up, you read a book about it. Did you even bring this to me? Right? So is our faith a seeking faith that actually pushes us to pray? And and the thing with each of these stages of faith is that um, each one is tested in, in a bit of a different way. 
So if you're in that first stage of faith, the, the testing that you're going to see, the, the, the test that would have hit this man before he got up out of his house and went out to Cana to meet Jesus was, ah, it'll never work. It's not, why even ask him? He's not even going to be, he's not going to give you the time of day, right? And so when, you, when you're in that place, the test that you're going to face is, prayer doesn't really work. Why even bother, right? That's, that's the first test. Will we even trust Jesus enough to bring it to him and see what he does, see what he says, right? But then there's that second one. Is our faith the kind of faith that leads us to obey him, to do what he says, to take him at his word? And when we're in that obedient stage of faith, the temptation is, God, just, you know, just give me one more sign before I step out, right? I, I believe you, I trust you, but I just, I just need one more thing, all right? I'm going to put one more fleece out, right? <laughs> this sign. And so, will we take him at his word? Is our faith, you know, I, I love reading uh, the, the life of uh, Oswald uh, Chambers, one of his principles that he lived by, this was so convicting to me, one of the principles he lived by was what he called simple obedience. And when he ran his school, he, in, in the middle of London, um, at the turn of the century, uh, a lot of poverty, one of his rules was, Jesus said, give to anyone who asks of you. And he said, we're going to do that. Anyone who comes up and asks us, we're going to give them what they ask for. It's like, whoa, but aren't people going to take advantage? Aren't gonna... and, and he says, well, when you obey, God takes care of that. That's not your problem. Your problem is to obey. Are you going to take him at his word and just simply do what he says? Right? And so if you're in that committed stage of faith, the temptation is different again. It's the temptation to begin to ignore how God is working in your life. You begin to think, oh, well, man, God's not really doing the stuff he used to do. I guess he's not around anymore. I guess he's abandoned me. And, and it's this temptation to stop looking around us at the things he is doing and seeing his faithfulness in every part of our lives. And so I want to leave you as we, I want the musicians to come back up and, and, and for us to pray together and examine our hearts and, and take that, that word of prophecy combined with what we've read here and, and use that to ask the Lord, Lord, spark that trust in me. Spark that faith to seek you. Give me that faith that would, that would trust you implicitly without a care in the world like this, this, this nobleman. Give me a faith that would so commit my heart to you that I would see you in every place. And I want to give you the good news here. Because you might be hearing this and you might think, man, I got I to gotta try harder. I got to work harder. You know, I got I to gotta work up more faith. Well, the good news is moralism doesn't work. The answer, the good news, is that Jesus has done the work for us. And so the answer, if you realize, man, I've been, I've been operating in some sort of bad faith, the answer is to turn from that, to repent, and just cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus that he would convince your mind, that he would stir your world, that he would engage your whole heart, because your faith is not effective because you have faith. Your faith is effective because it trusts him. It's the object of the faith that counts. All you have to do is turn to him, cling to him, and hold on to him. And as long as you're holding on to Jesus, you can be absolutely 100% sure that you will be saved. Not because of your strength, but because of who you're holding on to. So would you stand with me? And I wonder if there's anyone listening online or, or uh, in person at either of our campuses who realizes you know, I've never turned to Jesus and given him my life and called him Lord. 
And I want to tell you there's good news for you if that's you because you can turn to him at any time and trust him. And it says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is a moment for you to call on the name of the Lord. And you can do that very simply by a prayer. And it's not the prayer that saves you. It's him that saves you. And so the prayer can go something like this. Jesus, I turn away from all my own efforts. I turn away from what I know to be wrong in my life. Jesus, I throw myself on your mercy. Thank you that you love me enough not to leave me uh, to my own devices, but you came, you died for me, you were resurrected so that I could have new life. Jesus, please give me your Holy Spirit and I commit myself to you right now. And you can, you can, bring, himself, you can bring yourself to him in that way and Jesus says when you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. And so if you prayed that today for the first time or, or maybe for the first committed time, please do come talk to me or one of the, uh, uh, someone from the church here because this is something we walk out together. It's not a solo journey. This is a journey we take as a family. And for everyone else who, who we do have faith, we've, we've walked with him, let's just examine our hearts right now and bring whatever state your faith is in right now Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would reveal to us in our own hearts what is it that we really trust? Lord, show us the, the weakness, the patheticness of that thing to answer the desires of our hearts. Lord, and I pray that as we do that, as you reveal yourself to us, Lord, as we see you, that you would spark that gift of faith within us. That it would, it would cause a new seeking within this church. That it would cause a new level of obedience within this church. That it would cause a new level of commitment within this church, within our lives. Lord, that as we do that this year, you would absolutely transform our fellowship. <laughs> you transform our community. And that by that, just as that man's faith was contagious, Lord, you would make us contagious in a good way. <laughs> so, Lord Jesus, we bring all these things to you. We thank you that you operated in good faith towards us. That because of that, you risked your life. You not only risked your life, you gave your life so that you could win your bride. And we are grateful, Lord. And we glorify you with everything within us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.